Within the first week um, of our launch, between Monday and Friday, we received over 3,500 inquiries from professors at other universities asking wow. about careers at the University, university of Austin, 30, a university that doesn't yet exist. 3,500 people asking about careers the first week. The first week. That's great. And again, this was all based upon the principles that we put forward. You know, we just mm. went out there and said, look, we're going to start a university that is grounded in the principles of open inquiry and civil discourse and build from upwards from there. Welcome to the American Optimist. I'm excited to have my friend Pano Canellos here today. Pano is the co-founder and uh, president of the new University of Austin. Welcome, Pano. Thanks, Joe. Great pleasure to be here. Tell our audience a bit about yourself. What's, what's your background and, and you know, how'd you start your career in higher education? My career in higher education started long before I entered higher education. It started in the back of a Greek diner. Uh, I'm the, the Son, first generation, son of a family from Greece. Uh, and my parents were not people who had very advanced education. So I would spend my days in the back of a Greek diner uh, with a stack of books to keep myself busy. And that's when my education began. Uh, but I was lucky enough to make my way to college, the first in my family to ever go to college. And it was transformational. I went to Northwestern University. It was like entering a, a wonderland. There were books and smart people and conversations that I'd never imagined I'd have before. And I found that uh, higher education can be transformational. And so I stayed in higher education. I went on from, from Northwestern to uh, a few years later to Boston University for a master's degree in political philosophy and literature, and then on the University of Chicago for my PhD in the Committee on Social Thought, and then went on to be a professor, eventually administrator, and most uh, recently, before what I'm engaged in now, I was president of uh, St. John's College in Annapolis. What, what caused you to go from being a professor to an administrator? How did that happen? That's a good question. I never really intended it to happen. I was, uh, I loved teaching, do love teaching, uh, spent just so many great years in the classroom. Uh, but I had an opportunity to, to become dean of a, a great books honors program at Valparaiso University. And my heart was always in that mode of instruction. I just always mm -hmm. thought that a kind of great books core education was a wonderful thing to encounter at a university. And what, so... What, what, why do the great books programs matter? T tell us a little bit about that. Why do they matter? Yeah. Why, why does that matter? What's, what's uh, important about this? Well, because, I mean, look, we're human beings and human beings have been trying to ask and answer questions, well, forever. And um, what the great books are simply a kind of record of some of the most compelling answers that we've found along the way. And, uh, you know, being part of that great conversation, being part of the, the things that have been written and expressed in the past and try to trying to sort of um, think through the same questions in terms of how we how we live today. It's it's part of the great adventure of being a human being. Mm -hmm. So there, so you're running the, the you're running St. John's College, which has a great books program, a great, great university. And there's over four thousand school you know, universities around our country. So a lot of people ask, like, why? Why are we not just trying to fix one of them? What's, why, why do we need to build yet another university? Well, that's what America does. I mean, this is America's, America's superpower is that we create things. We, we create new things. We create new institutions. And those institutions reflect the spirit of that moment um, related to the, the legacy of the past. And so we're living in a moment now where um, uh, the legacy institutions are, you know, stumbling in particular areas and 
you know, it's it's a moment where a new institution can help um, find us a way forward. And, you know, so for, for decades now, people have been lamenting the state of higher education. And yet there hasn't really been a top new university this whole time. No one's gone and started one. Uh, you, you're now in the process of starting one. Uh, did you have, do you have more insight on why people have not done this before? Given, given, given your last few weeks, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tremendously difficult. I mean, a university is a very complex organization and starting it from the ground up is, is immensely complex. There's so many things to think about, so many features that, that are at play, but I think really at heart, it's, you start new institutions when you recognize that there's a North Star that you want to aim for. And I think the North Star that we have, that we're currently aiming for right now is a kind of renewal of the spirit of the pursuit of truth in higher education. And once, you know, once that becomes evident, once it's sort of, you know, it's there in front of you, you say like, look, we need to, we need to recapture that spirit. We need to, we need to reorient our institutions so that truth seeking is the, is the highest good at universities. Even more uh, important than diversity. Well, I think diversity is a, uh, diversity is a subset of truth. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it is a, uh, um, one of the things that we that we we learn in truth seeking is that human beings understand the world prismatically. That we come at truth from many different angles, many different forms of knowledge. A lot of people like to believe there's no such thing as truth anymore because we each have our own truths depending on the color of our skin or our backgrounds. Though, um, th- well, if that's true, then it undermines that very claim. Um, if you say there's no such thing as truth and you hold that to be true, that that's, that's rather paradoxical. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I look, I, I think, um, one of the, one of the issues at hand in higher education is that, um, a kind of a radical relativism, um, has, has begun to pervade our institutions of higher learning. Um, and it's a kind of, it, you know, it, it, there's sort of a, a paradox at play here on the one hand. There are those who believe that there is no such thing as truth, that it's our uh, imperative of human being as human beings to co- sort of impose our will, our own understanding on the world. And, and that's that's the greatest good. And we have that strand sort of um, uh, embedded within higher education. And on the other hand, there's a notion that we've already discovered what's true. There's a single truth. Uh, we know what justice is, for example. And we, we, should, just, impose, we should impose it. And we should impose it. There's a single truth, and it's now about implementation. And I would say that universities today have a kind of schizophrenia. They believe both of these incompatible things at the same time. Let, let's go back to the root of some of this. I, I, I have a, I'm trying to understand it related to other things. And so in, in, in economics, you kind of had the Austrians were in the ascent, and then Keynes came along in the late 20s and 30s, and he gave a philosophy the government loved because it justified government spending lots of money. And so he became really popular because they want to spend lots of money. I wonder if it did Keynes cause Keynesism or he was just, he just expressed this popular thing they wanted to do anyway. And it's, and when you go to Foucault after, after the war and you, and you get this postmodern kind of nihilist philosophy that says that everything's relative and, and everything's just, you can't really say what anything really is. There's no, not really serious truths. And, and, and that became really popular in academia and it spread throughout academia. Was there, was there something about academia that was just really eager and ready for that message? Or was it actually mm-hmm. Foucault and other philosophers that created it? Or like, like, how did this happen over the last 50, 60 years? Well, I think intellectuals tend to be, they're, they're predisposed to be countercultural, to be rebels. 
to sort of see themselves as existing on the on the fringes of society. Since they want to reject certain things in society. Right. And yeah. so, you know, Foucault and and um, and the postmodernist were sort of a radical version of this, you know, it's sort of a way to kind of overturn everything that had come before. And so as they the, these ideas are seductive. Uh, they're they're seductive because if you're the kind of intellectual vanguard, you're embedded in university and you've discovered the secret sauce to human history and the sauce tells you that actually there's no such thing as meaning and everything is empty in that. It's exhilarating to be in that position. And so I think that's a kind of uh, a, a, something that many intellectuals are seduced by. I guess it makes it makes them ultimately the ultimate elite in, the, in their own minds. And that's 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 fun. Elite or an elect. Right. I mean, this is much of what much of our contemporary culture is focused on people who have achieved a special kind of knowledge and so, were enlightened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so this is so it, it, it is um, it, it is very pleasurable if you're if you're dedicated to life of the mind to think that you are uh, somehow enlightened. So how do we so how do we transform university culture, at least within the University of Austin, and how do we have it set a, an example for other universities yeah. for how, how, to, for how does it reject some of these kind of more poisonous things and, and yeah. have healthier discussions? So I think the core to um, human beings are not only truth-seeking creatures, we are truth-seeking creatures who seek truth best together. We form communities of conversation. And so we need to lay the groundwork for that. And the, so you need to share need a shared set of reality and principles we all understand in order to talk. We need a, a, a shared set of operating principles to have conversations and, you know, loosely, you know, we might call this civil discourse and civil discourse has uh, three elements to it. The first is, and I think this is the foundational one, intellectual humility. You begin with the, the, the acknowledgement that we all um, know only little tiny fragments of what might be true. And we're trying to put this together Mm. um, in conversation. So there's intellectual humility. The second element is the unbridled commitment to the uh, absolute dignity of all human beings. Um, We're all rational creatures. We all have equal value. Very Judeo-Christian. It is, but not only, um, but it is indeed. And and the third element is a passion for truth. So if you have a passion for truth, you're truth-seeking, but you recognize your limitations and you recognize the dignity of everybody that's involved in conversation, you set the preconditions there for um, productive dialogue. Well, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about the, the launch of the university. Uh, this is, this is the, the first one that either of us have been involved in. Uh, you know, I think we knew the launch that would make news. Did you expect it would be trending on Twitter and be like a really big national news story as big as it was? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I, I, was, I thought we'd get some attention, but, you know, a nerve was struck. And uh, I think, you know, we're living in a moment right now where education is, you know, a, a, you know, very, <laughs> a very sensitive topic um, politically, socially, culturally. And so to launch an educational enterprise at this moment, I mean, in hindsight, it makes sense why this mm-hmm. is something that has become uh, a much larger news story than we had intended. But it shows, uh, it shows that people are really focused on it and frustrated with the current situation. It huh? shows that they're frustrated. It shows they're focused. And it shows that um, we're at a moment where people are looking for um, problems to be solved. Tell, tell me a bit about the reaction quantitatively. What, how, the first week, there are professors emailing students, supporters. Yeah. Like, what's, what's been the response? So, um, 
I think one of the most uh, heartening data points for us, at least in terms of, of feeling like we're doing the right thing, is that within the first week um, of our launch, between Monday and Friday, we received over 3,500 inquiries from professors at other universities asking wow. about careers at the University, university of Austin, 30, a university that doesn't yet exist. 3,500 people asking about careers the first week. The first week. That's great. Uh, and we had you know upwards of seven seven, eight, 9,000, I can't remember now, uh, inquiries from prospective students. Um, and again, this was all based upon the principles that we put forward. You know, we just mm -hmm. went out there and said, look, we're going to start a university that is grounded in the principles of open inquiry and civil discourse and build from upwards from there. And, you know, it, it really has attracted a lot of um, uh, positive attention. In the in the the general public, what's what's been, has there been other 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 support? What's like what, what's happened with support? Oh, support's been phenomenal. I mean, you know, it, we we've been receiving um, emails, notes from thousands and thousands of people who are um, supporting us, who are are um, who confide who are confiding in us that they had hoped something like this would come along. Um, you know, the the media attention has been overwhelming. Uh, you know, I never expected that I'd have to wake up at four in the morning because I got a ping on my phone and I'd have to use Google Translate to see what we were, what people were saying in Italy about us in the newspapers. The uh, Europeans were actually pretty positive. It sounds like yeah, overall in general, yeah, not but, as much snark as, as some of the, the, the East coast papers. No, no. You know, there's, there's been criticism, but I think I would say most of the criticism that's come out there has been, um, has been, at least earnest, like folks trying to say, okay, what, what's really happening here with this institution? Can they do it? Why, why, why are they trying to do it? So, some people are concerned. It's just going to be a conservative university. That's like one of the points of criticism. What do you, yeah. what do you say to those people? Um, we have no intention in starting a, a conservative university. In fact, our intention is to create a university that rises above politics. I mean, I think I think universities have an obligation to live um, above the heat of the moment that that they exist in, so that they can provide perspectives for society, for people to look back upon our questions and our, our turbulence in society from. Um, you know, from an objective perspective, the whole, the whole goal should be to transcend the tribalism that's going on. But the, but universities are obviously failing to do that in general, right? Every now. institution in this country is failing to do that. And right. but universities, I think, have an obligation more than other institutions to to strive to transcend that. How do you how do you do that in practice? If you have people who are there and they get caught, and these all of our brains can quickly get caught in a tribal things. You're the, you're the president, you're the, you're the, you're in charge. How yeah. do you, how do you, how do you get people as they start to argue back and forth and, yeah. and engage in the tribal warfare? What do, what do you do to transcend it and pull them out of it? Well, well, this is why universities are so important because universities are distinct communities that are sort of set apart from um, society where you have the opportunity to cultivate particular kinds of relationships. And so, you know, what universities should do is um, begin with the big human questions, you know, get bring your students and faculty together, um, pull back from the day to day concerns that we have and think about what it means to be a human being. What is human nature? What is liberty? What is justice? Think about those big questions together. And in the course of having those conversations, what you end up cultivating, you don't necessarily find the right answers. Those, you know, we've been working on this for millennia, but what you cultivate is a community of trust. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, if it, whether I'm a, you know, on the on the left or on the right or a person of faith or a, a, you know an agnostic or that you know when when you're when you're thinking about the question of liberty and how that how that's been addressed over time um, 
you transcend your individual identity or individual moment together. And that creates this kind of the conditions for people to um, trust one another, to speak profitably together. And then later on, you can get to the more difficult questions that are, let's say, of this moment. And, and so when you create those conditions, I, I want to ask a little bit about virtue and how that relates to it. So, so mm-hmm. almost all the leaders in our business world and politics and public life, they're all coming in our country from the universities, pre- pretty much all yeah. of them. And you, you mentioned justice earlier. There's, there's four classical virtues, right? Justice, temperance, wisdom, and courage. And, and, and I think these are all important. I think courage is, you know, which is your Maya Angelou said, you can't have the other ones if you don't have courage, basically, yeah. right? That was the theme of a lot of hers and a lot of other people's work. And it seems like courage is just really lacking amongst our leaders right now. It's, and it's, what you've done the last few weeks is taking a lot of courage. Like, like, like how important are, are, are virtues to inculcate? Is that something you're supposed to do as a university? Is that something you're, you're supposed to have open conversations? Maybe these virtues are good or not? Like, like, like what's, what's, how do these tie into this? I mean, I do think the formation of character is a central, um, should be a central priority of universities. Um, however, those, however you categorize these things. Um, and I think courage is essential. Um, you know, we, one of the things that we are, um, proposing as an institution is that we're, that we're going to be committed not to the pursuit of truth, but to the fearless pursuit of truth. And the fearless piece, the courageous piece is the important part. Um, because truth is difficult. Truth mm-hmm. is risky. Truth is on the fringes. Truth is heterodox. It's outside what's normative. And if you're really going to extend yourself and try to understand the world um, as best as we can, you have to be willing to go outside the boundaries of what's safe. So courage is, I think, the, the, the most um, important uh, element of, um, uh, of, of a true education. A, a lot of people in academia especially do seem really afraid to go outside the boundaries of what's safe. I mean, I'm just thinking of like different talks that we've had with different people yeah. from the academic world recently. Like I can't be associated with this person because they're outside this boundary and this is just not okay. Even if it's a genius person who's right about some things, but they think they're wrong about some things they're wrong in ways that are outside the, the acceptable boundaries. Like, so how do you, how do you think about that? Are we, we're going to allow all the heretics. I mean, there's certain, there's certain types of heretics that are so extremely probably don't want to associate ourselves with too. So how do you, how do you as the leader think about those boundaries? I mean, I think you want to push the boundaries as far as you possibly can. Um, universities are not platforms for free speech. All of society is a platform for free speech. We have that. We have that right. Universities are platforms for learning. And so um, if there's a topic that needs to be discussed, it's difficult. If there's a person who's presenting a challenging perspective, the first question is, is there something we can learn from this topic, from this person by listening, by questioning, by having conversation? And, um, you know, I think I, th- I think we want to push that as as far as possible. Now, I mean, there are, I think, pretty clear lines that you can draw. I mean, if a person, um, let's say, has uh, transgressive opinions and is, has actually put some of those opinions into action, has actually caused harm, causing harm to, to other people, yeah. um, then, then that person is not engaged in the kind of civil discourse that even, even we stand with, for. Even without causing harm, you could have some opinions that are so... De- so morally abhorrent potentially that they might not fit. And how do, how do we make those judgments? I mean, I think we, I think we don't, we make them collectively. I mean, I think we have conversations in advance as a community about Mm -hmm. where those boundaries are. 
um, and and sometimes talking about the morally abhorrent opinions um, suffices, you know, and mm-hmm. and in in the case of, as opposed to having somebody actually come and express them directly. Yep. No, it's, it's it's interesting to me because I look at the history of universities, mm-hmm. and you know, obviously I, I'm I'm Jewish through my mother's side. And there were 30 years of academics working on eugenics, and it was pretty universal within the universities. And there are these letters they wrote to Hitler thanking him for putting into work 30 years of their work that they that they'd worked on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these academics, of course, at the time were, were, were funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, which was the forward-thinking right thing to do, and to do these eugenics stuff that Hitler embraced. And, and it's amazing how they were just all agreed in academia, all, but a lot of them was the right way to think. Yeah. And it didn't turn out to be this horrible, horrible thing. And so, so I mean, are, are, there, are there other mistakes being made like that? Today and anyway, I not, you shouldn't compare anything to Hitler, but but I, I mean, are there, are there just groupthink mistakes and and, and 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 is that something just endemic to academia and how to into humanity yeah. and how, how do we push back on that? I mean, I I don't know of anything that egregious today, um, but w- what I would say, I mean, there certainly is groupthink, and um, I think the problem, one of the root problems today in higher education, which is endemic to the culture at large, is is not so much that everybody. Most people, almost everybody in higher education is on one end of the political spectrum, the left. It's the political asymmetry itself. Um, you know, if you're creating a culture of conversation and openness um, and with it, you know, it, and, and within that you create a kind of bubble where people's opinions are um, shared amongst like minded people and those who disagree with those opinions are excluded from the group, you're, you're really not serving the purpose of a, of, of a university. No, you, need, you need to have the debate. I, I have a couple hypotheses about teaching I want, I want your thoughts on. So one, one hypothesis, which is an obnoxious one I've mentioned a few times, it's self-serving, is I believe that a lot of my friends in the innovation world are actually in many cases, brighter than the vast majority of professors at top schools and they have very dynamic minds and they've, and they've created lots of huge, amazing things and are pushing things forward. Elon Musk being an obvious example, but a lot of people like that. And, and I, and I, you know, in another age, like Peter Thiel would probably be a professor in a university. He's a great intellect. He's very thoughtful. He's a philosopher on these things, but he actually finds greater self-actualization building businesses and mm-hmm. investing and, and figuring out the future of the world, impacting it that way. And so, and so, so one, one question is how do we, how do we incorporate these people into the university in the right ways? How can, how can we take that? Cause that's something that a lot of academics are very hesitant. They're like, Oh, they're not academics. They're, they're other, they're other, they're outside. They're, they're not elite and elect like us, mm-hmm. but in some ways we could probably learn a lot even more from them and benefit from combining them with what we're doing. So I guess the first question, like, like, do you, do you agree to some extent and how do, how do we incorporate these people into what yeah. we're doing? No, I think, look, there's sort of theoretical knowledge and applied knowledge and, and both are very important in a university setting. And, you know, we tend to think of applied knowledge in a kind of technical sense, you know, in the sciences and research, you know, but, but, um, there are other forms of applied knowledge, you know, business, entrepreneurship, politics. And, and a lot of these guys have philosophical structures they've created about the world that they then, that they then use for their work, but that are like, yeah. but that are quite theoretical as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I think, um, you know, they're, they're, um, Liberal education over the course of uh, the past uh, 2,000 years has had two different strands. Um, One we would call, let's say, the philosophers, and the other we'll call the orators, right? The philosophers Mm -hmm. are those who lead a life of contemplation. And, and, you know, that kind of educational institution is oriented around sort of isolating people from the world so they have the freedom Mm -hmm. to, to, to... 
to think and and discuss and write and do scholarship. Um, but universities have also been the home to orators. And what I mean by orators are people whose life is public, uh, people yeah. who, who exist to live uh, in society, who who are who are civic minded in that. And universities have also been training grounds for for public minded people as well. And I think the um, the best sort of university combines those two strands together. So, you know, the the public, you know, public achievement, people who have who have lived lives in the public have a lot to teach those who are at a university. And, and is, is it, it's somewhat interesting. Stanford, in, in some areas, uh, and despite all of its issues, is quite advanced still. And one thing that's fascinating to me is the people teaching computer science there, the people teaching uh, bioinformatics, uh, a lot of them became billionaires in the last 10 or 20 years. And, and, it's, and it's, it's clear it's because they were amongst the very best in that area. And then they were exposed and they were able to actually apply what they learned to creating things that turned out to be extremely valuable. Uh, and, and like, like, what do you, what do you think of that, of that combined culture? Is that, it's, it's a very weird thing for most of academia. This seems, seems to work, work well. Is that, is that a positive thing to have? Do you have something to be really careful about? No, I think, um, look, a liberal education is an education that frees human beings from ignorance and frees them to, um, to, uh, pursue, you know, what is valuable in, in their lives and in the world. Liberal education is predicated upon, um, up understanding the world from as many different directions as possible, mm-hmm. you know, um, from, from the humanities, philosophy, literature, the sciences, the applied sciences, mathematics, music, the more that we combine together these ways of knowing the world, the more we create people who are prudent and wise. And I think any kind of success really comes out of prudence and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what we're really talking about. One of the other ideas along those lines that, that's come up a lot with people I talk to is giving the kids or students experiences that they can then evaluate within these structures. So, for example, like trying to open a, a small business where they partner with someone to open a small business, and they see like the thirty things that get in their way to do this in San Francisco, and it becomes like this thing where they all of a sudden now they feel it themselves. Or, or going to a country that you know, that has a very strong top-down government where people are poor and they don't and it's not going very well, and experiencing what it's like for people who are trying to build there and trying to live there. Are, are there are there ways we can combine experiences like this with the philosophy that we're doing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think experiential learning is essential. Um, you know, thinking about taking, you know, taking students and embedding them in the experiences that will, um, uh, you know, allow them t- to make active the things that they've been learning in the classroom through books, through lectures and that. I mean, that's where knowledge, that's, that's when knowledge really takes fire. And I think the more that experiential learning can be uh, integrated into any educational setting, um, the more profound the learning. So, so st- step back a bit. Tell us a little bit about the plan for the next few years. Like, what's what's what happens next year or the year after? How how, how is this? How is this developing? So, like any new university, we are in the process of of building, uh, and we're building our programs, uh, our undergraduate programs, our, our graduate programs. We're building up towards accreditation. Uh, we're going to be building a campus. So, our hope is that within the next year, um, we will begin offering. Um, to the world, um, some programming from the university, initially courses, um, which we're calling the forbidden courses right now, next summer, which are going to be, um, courses that are are not for credit, but a kind of, um, instantiation of the spirit of the place where we're going to get professors who have differing opinions and students and put them in a classroom around very difficult topics. Well, we create, we create some content around this for people on the internet to watch as well. I, we might, uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll look at that. I mean, you 
don't want to film people while they're having these discussions because that will dampen discussion. But that I think, dampen. but I think we could do something that was parallel to it. Maybe the, the professors themselves or something that are teaching a few yeah. of these things that could be interesting. You know, and and the idea here is not to talk about difficult things just for the sake of creating some you know some sort of heat or, or friction, but so that we can learn how to how to how to express our opinions civilly and form our own opinions, which I think is the most important thing. So we want to begin just sort of doing that next summer as a kind of exercise, as a warm-up exercise, and 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 so we can learn from our own experiment how to do this really well. Then um, soon thereafter, um, maybe within the next year, we plan on offering a master's degree in entrepreneurship and leadership, uh, starting with that because, uh, I mean, for several reasons. One, in some sense, our, our university is an entrepreneurial enterprise. It's, mm. you know, and, and so the spirit of the university itself we want to embed in the very first program and, that we officially And this program offer. will teach, I think critical thinking is one of the big parts of that. Critical thinking is essential. Uh, teaching teaching um, future entrepreneurs how to think, how to assess, how to evaluate. I, I, I love what one of our friends told us about like the, the mental firewalls we all have and you know, like what ideas we let in or not yeah. let in and how to think about like this code running on our, on our minds, but who, who wrote that code yeah. and why are things tempting, but wrong sometimes. I think some of that's really interesting. Well, and what's so great is that terminology, you know, is so contemporary, but really what, what that expresses is just what Socrates taught us, which is that all knowledge begins with self understanding, self reflection, being able to turn inwards and evaluate what we know, how we know it, why we know it and, and where we can go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of our, all of our programs are going to begin with that. Um, even something like entrepreneurship. So I've forbidding courses that were, you're not still, you're not sure about the name. I like the name forbidden courses. We'll see it. So we teach some teaching, some seminars, summer seminars, a master's degree. And then what's next? So the following year, I think we're going to extend out to a couple other master's degrees. Uh, we're looking at degrees in politics, um, and then maybe, um, maybe a program in education and public service. So really jumping right into the middle of this tribal area of politics, despite the fact that we're avoiding tribalism. Well, I think we're going to, I, I think the idea there is, um, to study politics in order to transcend politics. Will it be policy as well then? Or, or, or how do you see that? I mean, I, I, I think, I, I think so. I mean, policy is politics in action. And so, you know, again, it goes the theoretical versus the applied. And my work, you know, as sister Institute, we, we, we figure out solutions that are good policy solutions and then we figure out how to get them passed. Mm-hmm. And in my work, the two are somewhat separate sometimes. Like you, you actually agree on a good solution, but then you see, okay, what's actually possible to get past a special interest and get these people aligned and get these people to like it. And so, so they're, they're, they're related, but they're, they're separate too sometimes. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, again, that's the spirit of the institution, yeah. you know, sort of merging thinking and doing sometimes they're separate, but as you're thinking about those solutions, if they're ultimately not solutions that can be put into action, then they're really not solutions. Mm-hmm. So we got so, so it's so it's forbidden courses, master's degree, then then launch the undergrad. The hope is to get an undergraduate program up and running in twenty twenty four, fall of twenty four, and that's up and running. It, it just, I mean, for clarity's sake, there's no way we can be fully accredited by twenty twenty four. But a lot of uh, students aren't going to care as much about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the accreditation process will be in place by that. So the accreditation you'll process, be, you'll be going with includes, the process, but then you'll but you're, it yeah. includes a phase where you have a kind of provisional accreditation or you're, you know that sort of thing that every school goes through that phase. So the, yep. the first phase of offering courses is, uh, is, 
you know, that, that run up to being accredited. So, you know, we're, our plan, our hope is to launch the first undergraduate courses, um, 2024. And, uh, and one, one tough question, I'm curious if you have an answer, what's the best critique leveled so far? Like what's the, what's, what's, what's the best advice or, or things that people are worried about that you've heard about? Yeah, I think that, that a recurring critique, which I think we want to take very seriously is, um, you know, uh, to ensure that we are clear about what it is that we stand for versus what it is that we're against. Um, so it's not all about just stopping crazy Wilkinson from conquering everything. No, it's not. It's not all about that. <laughs> In fact, it's not, it's, it's, it's only peripherally about that. You know, I mean, we want to create an institution, not because of the current political climate, we want to create an institution that will be here centuries from now when people won't even remember yeah. when, these terms. Hopefully we'll not remember Wilkinson a century from now. That, would be, that would be ideal. But no, <laughs> no, I, I agree. There seems like there's such a big gap between like what these universities could be yeah. doing to teach our best leaders in society and, and how it could be inspiring people versus what they get right now. So yeah. there's, there's a lot there. I, I think part of what we need simply as a society is we have our heads, we're in the weeds. Our heads are now in the moment with every news cycle, every Twitter cycle and that. And, you know, what we need to do is lift our vision up and look at things more broadly and look far ahead. And that's what we're trying to do as an institution. I mean, mm -hmm. we're building for, you know, for the long term. We're looking ahead, centuries ahead. I mean, that, that may sound audacious, uh, but we wouldn't be doing this if we weren't thinking that audaciously. And where can folks go to, to, to learn more and keep abreast of what's, what's going on here? Uh, we have a website, uaustin.org. I guess they can give us their email and you're going to tell them what's happening. Send us an email. We've got lots of little awesome buttons you can click on there for various uh, sorts of information. Uh, and we do encourage uh, uh, faculty who are interested in what we're doing to get in touch with us and also prospective students. Um, you know, this is a we're, we're in the process of building something very exciting right now. And we want as many people to be part of this as possible. And so we, we created this podcast, American Optimist, to kind of push back on a lot of the cynicism that we're seeing today. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is obviously an extremely optimistic story yeah. to, to be able to build a new university. Like, like what is, what does it mean for America if we, if we could do this and, and, and tell us again, like, like, what, like, like, like what, what really inspired you to do this? Yeah. If, if, if we can do this when we do this, I should say, um, we will be bringing into the world an institution that's grounded in hope that we can bring the better angels of our nature to the forefront um, we're, we're going to be creating an institution that returns us to a spirit of uh, grace and a spirit of forgiveness. Uh, we live in a culture where we're quick to blame and um, reticent to forgive. We should turn that around. And, you know, then we'll be able to start talking to each other. And when we can start talking to each other, we're going to we're going to. Um, repair that common culture that's essential to, to living together in society, to being a sort of liberal democratic nation, to being a thriving uh, uh, society and regime. I mean, you know, this is an institution that is um, optimistic. When was the last time in our society that, it, that, that a project like this was undertaken that succeeded and that, and that it had a big impact? I mean, the last time um, that, you know, uh, let's say uh, an elite university was founded, um, 
was in the late 19th and early 20th century. There was a kind of uh, a period there where some of the great current, current great universities, Hopkins, Chicago, and the, the university of those ilk were started. And Maybe so, Stanford counts too. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Stanford. Uh, but you know, there was, there was a moment there where, where university building was where um, the entrepreneurial energy in the country was going, where the, where the great, you know, the great business leaders, the great um, leaders of industry were founding institutions. And um, I think we're in another moment like that. I hope we're the first of many institutions like this to be founded. Well, Pana, you're, you're a great leader and entrepreneur and, and uh, an American optimist. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Joe. Great to be uh, here today and great to be doing this with you. 